There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Joining us for the Third Coast Conference this year in Chicago? Well, you might want to come a day early, because on November 8th, we bring you ReSound Live at Talia Hall. Starring Phoebe Judge, the neo-futurists, Adriana Cardona, and me, Gwen Maxi, all performing original works, from the previously unspoken to the deliciously unexpected. ReSound Live will be part of our special two-week fest in Chicago, which will also include Love and Radio, Code Switch, and Reveal, live on stage. To get tickets and see the entire fest lineup, go to thefestchicago.org. That's thefestchicago.org. We will see you there. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On the show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Creative sound projects can blur the lines between radio, audio documentary, sound art and music. In this session, Ben Rubin, a media artist who is now the director of the Centre for Data Arts in New York, focuses on the history and practice of artists who challenge the traditional definitions of those fields. In this talk, he includes examples from composer Steve Reich, artist Janet Cardiff and maverick pianist and radio producer Glenn Gould. From the 2003 Third Coast Conference, here is Ben Rubin with The Music of Voices. Welcome again. I'm Ben Rubin, and, uh, and this session is The Music of Voices. And I'm going to talk about my own work and about the work of artists that have been influential to me and play examples of both. And I've tried to make a loose thread through all of this, which is the voice, uh, starting with the, the first clip that I showed. Uh, the voice is not present in everything that I do and, and not present in everything that I'll show, but it's, I think, the voice, notions of, of how we hear, how we hear voices differently than other sounds and uh, kind of call and response uh, uh, as a dynamic, all those things really play play into my work throughout. So um, uh, that's the thread. And um, I'll start with uh, a piece that I don't really have uh, uh, a sample for, except for this image. Um, 
This is the first thing I did. I, I studied documentary film, uh, uh, studied computer science and filmmaking as an undergraduate. Then I went to MIT to study with professor there who had been my teacher's teacher as an undergraduate, a documentary filmmaker named Ricky Leacock. And so I sort of learned uh, observational cinema, uh, uh, cinema verite as, as, a, as, a, as a practice there. And while I was still at MIT, a composer named Steve Reich came there fishing for a kind of uh, a technical guy uh, who could help hook him up with techniques and, and technologies that would allow him and his collaborator, uh, the video artist Beryl Corot, to realize this, uh, this rather ambitious for the time uh, kind of multimedia music piece. And they referred to this work as a kind of documentary opera. And uh, this was, I think, the first uh, divergence from you know, what, what I'd imagined I would be doing, which is going out to make documentary films. Suddenly I was in this performance uh, music world. I'd never set foot in a theater before uh, and uh, started working with, with a composer who was already at the time one of my great heroes and, uh, and got really interested in both what he was thinking about, which I'd already been interested in, known about his sort of formal ideas, Steve Reich, and I'll play you two examples right now uh, of his work. Um, he introduced for me, uh, before I ever knew him, the idea of phasing and phase music. How do you take, um, well, I'll play, I'll play the first uh, section. This is when I was building these machine systems for the cave. But here's Steve Reich's work from the 60s. Uh, the first piece that he, he's probably best known for in the 60s is this piece called Come Out. And what this was, was uh, you'll hear in a second, he had a tape recorder. He made a, a, a short loop of a, a phrase that you'll hear. And then he put that on two tape recorders and set them rolling. And he thought he was trying to just find interesting offset points uh, and make music out of just you know sort of this, what we would now think of as a digital delay kind of an effect, uh, just take one sound and repeat it later and, and uh, he discovered in the process of, of just doing this that what was more interesting than discovering specific relationships was letting the two tape recorders drift out of phase with each other and so that's what this piece is and it's a I think it's about a 12 minute piece I'm just going to play the first uh, three minutes or so to like open the blues up and let some of the blues blood come out to show them Show them come out to 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 show them come out
come out to show them 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 come out to show
So you can hear how this, this is two identical patterns being played and just phase shifted and gradually it really it goes through this continual process of transformation. Um, wow, there really is sound bleed. Uh, Julie asked me to keep the levels very low because of the sound bleed, so I, I apologize. I can you hear okay? Was that level like, okay, so I'll keep it around that level. Um, so, uh, and, and I think the reason I'm presenting these is because of the piece uh, that I'll show you right now, um, which is a piece I just finished. Uh, in fact, I, I just finished the documentation for this. It was shown uh, just a couple of weeks ago at a festival in Seattle, and it's called Spin. And it's, um, it's the first piece that I've made that is uh, uh, a really essentially abstract piece. I mean, everything from, from this piece forward that I'll show you is very much connected with sort of uh, themes and topics and, and uses language uh, extensively. Uh, so I'm starting with the kind of most uh, abstract and formal work. Um, but, uh, well, I'll show you what this piece is about. Um, this piece is about trying to create a kind of synthetic choreography of sound and form and using these wheels to kind of be visual representations of sound. And the way the piece works is it's laid out in a, in a room. This is a kind of a concept sketch for for the way these wheels could move, uh, which I originally did without sound. The idea is that they move together, they move separately, and that there are eventually uh, ways of playing with kind of phase and phase shift between them as they, as they rotate. Um, and uh, it was another early sketch. But this is the way it eventually laid out in the room, these six discs, uh, which are about this big, they're two feet across, uh, they're projected uh, forms onto these discs and above each disc, just behind and just above and, and just kind of disappearing into the blackness is in fact one of these very same speakers, uh, big Mackie speaker. And so each disc had, there were six speakers, six d distinct sounds. So it created this kind of line of, of sound uh, and I'll show you just a this video runs about seven minutes. Um. So conceptually what's happening is it's as if each disc is a phonograph record. Uh, and as the disc spin forwards at a kind of what I call the normal speed, which is actually pretty close to 33 RPM, uh, uh, you would hear the sound at a kind of nominal pitch and speed when the disc would spin faster. Um, you would hear the sound correspondingly speed up. If the disc would stop, uh, the sound would stop. And you could sort of scratch the discs, which you'll see in one part of this, and, and the sound would kind of scratch. So.
closed sequence in this space. Drop back by one uh, eighth note, I guess. 
Um, any questions on that piece before I yeah. move on? Yeah. Um, people have asked that before, and the answer is really there. How to, I'm not sure how best to articulate this. This piece is new enough that I'm not that good at explaining it yet. But um, essentially, the software that I made that runs this has each. It's as if I put a record onto six six different records onto six different turntables. And then I start the, the scene of the piece. Like there were, you saw four different sections there. There are four different, essentially, samples uh, attached to each disc uh, in each of those scenes. And once that's set up, I don't change that for the rest of the, the movement of that piece. All I do is control the speed of that disc, uh, of each of those discs. So when I tell the disc to go forward, the disc turns and the sound goes. They go together. They can't be separated any more than a, you know, a record could turn with the needle down on it and you could hear a different sound. No, you know, you hear exactly what it is. So that's that's what I tried to set up is the system where where they were they were essentially locked together. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if that answers the question, but so what I was triggering is the movement, and the movement is both it. it, it manifests itself both visually and sonically. Um, I wrote software in a system called Max MSP. So. Well, I guess for one thing, I'm not actually trained as a composer or musician, so I'm just kind of working intuitively, and I don't have very many tools at my disposal, uh, in a sense. And in fact, the only way I've found so far to work out musical ideas is to set them up within the context of some kind of piece with a lot of other stuff going on. And then the musical ideas sort of they emerge or they, 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 they kind of work themselves out that way. So I kind of set this whole thing up so that I could work out these ideas. And I think it was driven by some of the same things that I think were driving that, that uh, uh, Wojciech, uh, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce his last name, uh, you know, just an investigation. What can we learn about, you know, the relationship of sound and image and, and movement um, and how they how they kind of kind of attach themselves to each other. Um, so that's kind of what that piece was about. So I'm going to go on from there uh, and return. 
I don't think the music would have existed without the image in this particular case. It's not like I wrote music and then tried to put an image to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a way that, in the in the instance of that last section of the piece, which was a, a kind of really straightforward face piece, I thought it was, you know, it made it easier to appreciate what it means. What what is a face piece? Well, it's these two things kind of turning, and one of them is gradually drifting against each other, and it's like you know, like you can see the windshield wipers kind of, or they don't do that anymore, but they used to go out in and out of phase with each other. Um, so it, it, that's sort of what it was heading for. Um, actually, well, I guess I can set this up. Now this is really undignified. What happens next here? Because the video does all kinds of So this piece I'm showing, this is uh, Vim Vendor's uh, Wings of Desire. And um, there's a scene in this movie, this is the undignified part. Uh, okay, okay. Um, there's a scene in this movie that really has, has stuck in my head and I think was uh, certainly one of the things in my mind, uh, I, where, where I'm leading towards is this piece, Listening Post, that I did uh, last year, finished last year. And um, so I wanted to show you this, uh, which really stuck in my mind because of the sound, primarily. So I'll show about four minutes of this. Ashley. We've already established, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, at this point in the movie we've established that there are these angels who drift through the city of Berlin unseen by the people and, uh, and they can hear what people are thinking. And so now we're in a library. <laughs> Walter Benjamin kaufte 1921 Paul Klee's Aquarell Angelus. Über sie hinweg ziehen die Kraniche, die an die Pulsionen schaut, den Kopf fest auf die Sense. Ihre Wählung sind Millionen-Modellen. Die seltene Implantation im kurzen interstitiellen Teil geht ebenfalls mit einer Unterdatur-Arnähe gelegentlich ist.
struck it was among other things one of the first films I remember seeing in stereo uh, it was released in stereo and, and shown in stereo and uh, I just had never been so struck by sound in a film as this um, and I think just the way that that moment of sound design and the whole early part of the film creates this kind of babble of multiple layers of voices uh, becoming this kind of underlying wash of sound and then setting against that or uh, allowing to rise up from that specific voices that you can hear individually and um, I think the experience would be somewhat different if I understood German uh, but uh, I think the idea is pretty clear Kale, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. 
I'm Gwen Maxey, host of Third Coast podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. Another piece um, that I'll play, just a, a little excerpt from, uh, again, music. This is a piece by Thomas Tallis, who's, uh, uh, I'm not going to get the time period right, I won't try, uh, early music composer. Uh, and uh, this particular piece is a motet for 40 voices. And 40, it's a 40-part motet, so it's 40 individually changing parts, uh, every member of the chorus has a, a different part to sing. And um, I'll play this in part to describe an installation that I saw. Uh, did anyone else see this Janet Cardiff piece? Yes, at PS1. Uh, absolutely extraordinary piece um, where she had recorded. recorded the motet with the 40 singers individually mic'd and then put 40 speakers around a room uh, so that you had the experience of being in the, they were arranged in a ring facing inwards in groups of five and they were just at the height of a person so you had the experience being in this installation of being Thank you. 
which brings me to this piece. Um, did anyone see this at the Whitney? Yes, a few people, but mostly not. Um, oh, in Seattle, wow, great. Um, we, we workshopped it in Seattle. Uh, to, uh, so this piece is um, a piece that I worked on for about three years with a statistician named Mark Hansen, who was at Bell Laboratories. He's now at UCLA. And um, the piece started out as a kind of uh, uh, sort of a geeky experiment with uh, data and sound and, and how can we, um, you know, create software to run data into it and hear sound out and would that be a worthwhile thing to do? We weren't sure. Uh, and through a long and circuitous path, we ended up sort of stumbling on chat as our data and deciding that this, this outpouring of language from all the thousands and thousands of chat rooms that were, uh, that, that exist throughout the internet was something that we would try to initially listen to and later it grew into a kind of audiovisual piece. So this is, these are just, just run through these process pictures. We built these circuit boards. We hung them in these strands. Um, this is a sort of visual inspiration. This is a piece by Robert Irwin, a uh, kind of open grid of screens um, that uh, I liked for, for the fact that it creates this kind of spatial plane but is so permeable and, and, and open. And so this is our permeable plane of text. This is the piece in the studio. Here it is in an earlier format at uh, BAM in Brooklyn. And uh, what I want to get to, I'll put the, put the disc in. There's some video of this that I'd like to show. So first I'll show this part. This, um, what we're trying to accomplish with this piece is to somehow give a sensory representation of, of just this enormous uh, chaotic outpouring of, of language that's coming from all these websites. Uh, so this part of the piece just takes all the messages and kind of sorts them by length. And so you'll see sort of waves of shorter messages and longer ones. And uh, the shorter messages are, are sort of, they are the less bright pixels, if you think of this as a, as a kind of composite display. And there's also a very subtle sound that you can just barely hear. The longer the messages are, the louder they kind of flutter the displays. back to the motet uh, notion and how it ties into this in, in any way. Um, there are not 40 speakers in here, but there are eight, and there are five uh, sort of in an arc uh, behind the 
the visual part of the piece and then three behind. So there is a kind of uh, uh, spatial variety of where the sounds come from. And in certain scenes, they come from the part of the screen where you see text. And that's the case in this next scene that I'll show. This, this part, uh, we found when we analyzed all the messages coming in, we looked for you know different features in them. What are the most common words, most common phrases? Uh, what one thing we found is that among the most common words that begin messages, uh, messages most often begin with the words "I am," and so based on that, we just started skimming off in ascending order of length, and then presents them in, in as you'll see. I'm an east sided. I'm a white lighter. I am stumpy. I'm all yours. I am a professional healer, dear. I'm hungry. Not repeating. I am a student here. I'm still used to windows. I am from Argentina. I am proud of not being British. I'm worried about that, lucky. I'm in Eastern Canada, grumpy. I'm in Victoria right now. I am Israeli, but I am from 1980. I'm not really. I am a Colombian boy. I am good, thanks. 
am just a security guard. I am not so god with English. I am from Romania. I am stuck in Oklahoma. Since I was listening I'm to the last to session, uh, a couple of things struck me. Uh, I am gone. One in terms of the music, uh, I am what you Jonathan Mitchell said about you know trying to find a music that I sort of train station. provide a neutral support and yet kind of bring out the I am alive. inherent qualities in what this was. That's, I think, what I was trying to do with this music. And um, the other was that, um, and I was going to say it's particularly challenging because I don't know what the text is going to be. It's always different. Um, so I was trying to provide something that would be kind of emotionally an open enough framework to allow the text to be funny or sad or you know whatever it kind of wanted to be. The other thing was in listening to that uh, uh, Shades of Grey piece, uh, there was a comment somebody made about you know hearing these comments and not knowing is this a person who's contemplating an abortion, just had an abortion, is totally opposed to anybody being able to have them. Um, not knowing the context actually is a very powerful thing. And I found that true uh, as we were constructing this, that you know, it was, it was the, the sort of leap of imagination that would happen when you would read something and you just wouldn't know. Is that, you know, what was that being said in response to or to try to provoke or, you know, its, it's context is absolutely gone and, and unrecoverable. Um, and so, your imagination kind of has to fill in. And uh, so I think things that were never part of something that might have ever seemed poignant in context might seem poignant because of the, the, the sequence that you end up seeing them in. Um, so I'll show one more section from this. to stop communism. In background for your lives. Hebonash, Blue Bear Arang, to have his name put above the Nasdaq sign in New York dash every time the closing numbers were shown out to advertising time I suggest you use your head first. This is a much more complicated uh, kind of algorithm working in this in this part of the piece. It initially pulls a message at random and puts it on the screen, uh, and then it looks for messages that are coming down this torrent of text that have words in common with it. And if it doesn't find any, then the message just fades away. But if it does, then you find topic areas starting to kind of spontaneously grow. And because of the way the algorithm works, it creates these sort of unpredictable patterns time. You don't know precisely when a message is going to be trapped by the software. 
But when one is, that's read by the voice and among the freezes on the screen just click and you'll hear a tone. Under those conditions, you can have it to proceed with the time to so this one gradually gets more and more intense and the, the uh, screen uh, becomes more full uh, before the end. It kind of builds up in density as it goes. Um, so, any questions about this piece? Yeah. We wanted to, well, first of all, we were looking for some kind of voice synthesis software uh, that would read the text for us because the text is coming in live, there's no way to have a human being. Although it's an interesting thing, I've started to imagine trying to do a performance where you do have people actually reading these messages. But um, in order to, to, to build this as an installation, we had to find some kind of a, a software voice. And Mark was at Bell Labs at that time and they had an experimental uh, voice synthesizer that was capable of doing 50 independent voices that could come out of 50 different speakers uh, from one computer. And there was nothing else really anywhere around that could do that. But because it was sort of prototype software, this was the only voice they had, this male British. Um, there was a female voice and we just couldn't get it to work. Uh, and I would have loved to have that as a, as a, as a color to add to the piece as well. Uh, but, so it's, it's uh, at this point, sort of a technological fact. It just is what it is. Yes, in the back. It's a, it's a live stream. Right. We had a network of computers at that time out at Bell Labs that were running sort of software robots that would crawl the web uh, looking for active chat rooms. And when it found an active chat room, it would just lock onto that stream and pipe all the, all the text back to a central place. And that became our, our sort of, you know, it all, it all got funneled into one unified stream of, of text. And that, if it found, it would do dictionary lookups on the language that it was getting. And if it found a lot of words, you know, the, the certain percentage of the words were not in the English dictionary, it would go away. Uh, and there were always lots of, you know, I think the percentage we had to use was like 65% in the dictionary because there's so many sort of typos and and webisms, you know, chatisms that people type with that are not in the dictionary. Well, 
I hadn't seen that Wings of Desire thing in years, but it certainly was rattling around. I mean, you know, clearly it was rattling around in my head. Um, and uh, so uh, I actually just got the DVD uh, this week for this conference, and it is sort of, it's striking to me, you know, the, the similarities were more than I even had remembered. Um, Dean, you had a question? The only terms that we chose were I am and I like. And, uh, yeah, they alternate. I think it would display a whole message. Uh, it was it was the whole message. So it's I am, and then whatever whatever follows. And in some cases, that was as short as I am, and it stopped there. But in other cases, it was I am, blah 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 blah, and it, it would just take all that, and it went up to like a hundred characters, and then it would it would stop. Um, yeah. People mainly there. There was a sign outside that um, that it, 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 well, the attempt was to explain. To me, the most important thing that I wanted people to know was that the piece was live. You know that this wasn't just being drawn from a database. That we didn't type this in. That it wasn't edited. At least not not uh, by you know not in any specific and intentional sense. Uh, but that it was all being drawn in as, as part of a process and that it was live. Um, so there was a little explanation outside that tried to at least make that point. And beyond that, we just let, let people make what they would of it. One more question back there? Well, I guess I, I hope it. Well, I guess I guess the hope is that it does leave people with questions. You know. Um, well, I guess questions ultimately about does this represent any in any way the kind of gestalt of what are, what are people thinking out there. Uh, does this represent the buzz of of consciousness or any any subsection of it, or is that even something that's possible to do? Um, in a sense, that that's what the piece was striving to do, with the full knowledge that to to represent that is kind of futile. It's it's impossible, uh, and yet, you know, to build a system that's sort of trying to do that. Well, that that was that's the experiment. What happens if you try? Uh, so th those are the questions, I guess, uh, at the deepest level that I would hope that people would be left wondering. Yeah. Well, that 
Well, at that level, chat exists without uh, much sound and without much uh, sort of sensory uh, richness. You know, it's mainly people typing alone in front of computer screens. Um, and so it's about as unsensual as you can get. And this is, I think, part of it was also by making an aesthetic framework that it could be in and something that would be at least hopefully beautiful in some way that would draw people in and and open them to experience this stuff in a way that I know I'm not open up I just see chat scrolling by on a screen it doesn't I, I can't even look at it you know it doesn't it doesn't have any impact on me and I can't certainly can't find any emotional resonance in it so uh, trying to create a situation that allows, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the tricky thing because in creating an aesthetic framework you run the risk of imposing what that interpretation is. And so the, the, the aspiration of the piece is, is not to impose that, but to give you just enough of a, of, of a stage that it's set on to allow, you know, an emotional resonance to, to happen, to let the stuff speak for itself which I don't think it can do in its native form. It doesn't do that very well. So that was, that's the goal. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the, you know, the piece has all these different axes that it's trying to work on, and, and, the, and that's what I was talking about with Wings of Desire, the axis of this flattened murmur, you know, which is the collective, which you, you only hear as a kind of sound, as, a, as a, just a wall of sound, and then the individual voices, and um, trying to work with, with modulating that, you know, the I am is all about these individual assertions, I am, and they're out in the open, they're in the clear, they're, you know, you can hear them explicitly and they're not lost in the mass. And other scenes are much more about, uh, about that wash. So, um, yeah, I mean, once, once that single British voice was established as our only option, we just sort of worked within that framework. Um, to one more question, then I'll move on, and I, uh, hopefully I'll have time at the end for questions, too. Okay, well, it's Okay. Well, without, without, like, overthinking that, which I could certainly do, um, what I did next was spin, you know, so 
in a sense, it, this project left me with all these sort of formal things about sound and image that I wanted to explore, which isn't sort of the obvious thing. Maybe I wanted to be free for a little while from from the text, um, but it also left me with a whole lot of things that I wanted to do with text and with you know what you can do with. You know, Mark and I are still working. Uh, now we're now we're taking news as the kind of fodder for um, for for a project. You know, uh, culling from the I think it's 4,000 news feeds that Google News is getting, uh, and and looking at those as something to be mined. Uh, and news is sort of the opposite of chat. It's like it's it's the information that's coming down from above, and this is what's coming up from below. So those stand in interesting opposition to each other. Uh, and so there's a lot to explore in both of that and in the relationship between those two. How does the chat reflect the media? How does the media reflect what's being reflected back? And you know, can, can you get at that feedback loop in some way? So, um, oh, dying to play this, but I'm going to skip it. Watch the TN lunatic. Um, let's see. Don't have too much time left. Um, I'm going to take stock of things for just a moment and see what I want to really not miss. All right, I'm going to skip Kirscher. Sorry, Kirscher. Um, and just talk about a few uh, living sound artists that um, that I really admire and whose work uh, has has certainly had an impact on mine. Christian Markley is one. Uh, some of you may know he's a, a really important contemporary artist, and um, his whole history uh, sort of begins with the, the turntable as the uh, you know as the as the central element, and. Uh, uh, he's just done every imaginable kind of thing with turntables and records and and uh, both in performance and, and installation. And he also deals a lot with sort of physical manifestations of sound and sound producing objects and sound systems. And this is a piece I unfortunately don't have the video for, um, but it's an incredibly powerful piece. It's a video piece, uh, just plays on a monitor or projection. Um, and. It begins with Christian Markley tying this guitar uh, to the back of a pickup truck, and then he drags it, and the soundtrack is what is picked up, you know, from this, it's plugged in. So it's what's picked up from this guitar as it's dragged along this dirt road, and, um, and eventually is, is totally destroyed in the process. Um, but it's, at the same time, sort of funny and horrifying and and deeply disturbing and it's about you can you can sort of feel the rocks in the road through the impacts that they make on the guitar and you hear you sort of hear what the guitar is feeling and uh so there's there's a sort of empathy in this piece that I find really moving uh, uh so that's it's called guitar drag uh and he made it about 3 or 4 years ago um, this is a floor that he covered with records. Uh, he's done this in a number of places, and uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think in some cases he'll later play the records to, you know, sort of get what's picked up by all the 
activity of people's feet. And, and this one, is an unrelated was, piece. And, and, and it was a wonderful time. And there was one man there who had one man there, was one man there, was one man, and there was one man there who had one man there who had a long tube on the end of his smoker. And he told us that he was gonna tell us that he was gonna put us that he was gonna put us that he was gonna put us that he was gonna pull us and he told and he told and he told out of his smoker. And he told So that's just a little taste of, of what he's doing. It had an interesting relation. That piece, when I heard it, uh, just when I was putting these all together, had an interesting relationship with some of the Steve Reich stuff. It's a totally unsystematic way of uh, doing the sort of looping repetition um, and uh, very different results. Um, Pauline Oliveros is... Uh, composer some of you may know. Um, she lives in uh, the Catskills area and um, well I'll play one piece and I'll first talk about a piece that, that is sort of a conceptual performance work that I don't have any record of but she does this performance, she's done it a couple of times, where uh, she will work with a shortwave radio operator or a ham radio operator to direct a uh, signal to the moon. And so she does a performance where she'll take the output of one of the instruments or performers or singers and run it into the shortwave transmitter. It's beamed to the moon, reflected off the moon, and then received back into the space. And there's a delay, I forget precisely what it amounts to, it's like 18 seconds or something. Uh, for the round trip of the radio signal from the moon and back to the earth. And uh, to me, that's just such a beautiful, uh, you know, it, it, it does so many things with sound. It, it kind of creates this beautiful cosmic physical relationship with the earth and the universe. Uh, and it also, the sound comes back and it's totally transformed by this process of being converted to shortwave and sent and received and uh, has uh, an extraordinary quality to it. Um, and, uh, oops, so we didn't... And I'll just play you a little of this, uh, this is a long piece that is made from uh, speech melodies run through a vocoder.
a chance to see Pauline Oliveira speak or present her work or perform. She's really an inspiring person. And another artist who has uh, really influenced me is Hans-Peter Kuhn. He, um, let's play a little bit. He's, he's someone who does most of the sound design for Robert Wilson's theater work. And this is a piece I'm not actually sure what theater work this is from. It's a little bit of what he does. Theater sound. Um, it's his installations that have most inspired me. He really uh, works with the kind of drama of space and he makes these sound installations that aren't really even about the sounds at a certain point as much as about how the sounds kind of occupy a space and, and uh, move through um, so I'll show you a little bit of what I'm talking about. what he thinks of as yellow sound. And, um, these are the pieces I know the best, uh, and the effect of these, I, I, there's no recording of them, and I don't know how a recording could really do it justice, because the effect is all about being in the presence of these multiple sound sources, uh, when uh, this is a sort of a random phase piece in, in a sense. Um, there's a, a click that's triggered at regular intervals in each speaker, but it's a, a fairly inexact circuit, so within only a few seconds of the thing being turned on, it becomes kind of a random field of these uh, uh, noises. And it's a, it's a kind of extraordinary sound uh, and, and experience. It's a little bit like rain falling, I guess. And here's a piece, I don't know, did anyone see this? He worked on it for years and years in planning it, and it was supposed to be up for a couple of years, and it ended up being only uh, it, it, it got taken down after two weeks for some reason, um, but uh, it was on this pier in New York, and it was really an incredible piece. Uh, the picture that you're looking at is shot from where you would actually experience the piece, which is a, another pier that's um, like, a, I don't know, maybe 100 yards away. Um, and. The pier's really long, and it has these, I think there are nine speakers along it, uh, nine of these sort of uh, pylons with a colored light, and each has a very, very large speaker in it that's pointed towards the pier where you see the work from, and sounds kind of skitter uh, back and forth. Uh, sometimes they move in, in, in kind of rhythmic pulses, but more often they're kind of, you know, sort of scurrying along this distance. And it just does an amazing thing of kind of collapsing scale uh, to to hear something moving so fast and so clearly. Um, and also just the act of experiencing this piece meant walking from the West Side Highway, which is where this pier starts, 
where there's like a deafening roar of traffic out all the way to the end of this pier where you really hear very little except the peace and you know the, the sounds of the boats on the water. Uh, and so just that process of paying attention to sound as you're distancing yourself from the city was really uh, a memorable one. So this piece, um, probably, th this is the one that's been on the radio, uh, uh, and um, some of you may have heard it, and I'll just talk briefly about it and play just the beginning, because I, I think it might be played again tomorrow. Um, but uh, this is a piece I made in 2002. It was a commission from Creative Time, which does public art pieces in New York, and apparently now in Chicago, too. Uh, I think they have their first out of New York project here. Um, and the commission was uh, at the moment of the reopening of this winter garden space, which was destroyed uh, when the uh, towers fell. And uh, so when Creative Time asked for a proposal, I went down there, looked around, thought about what this place was, and, and uh, they really were very explicitly trying not to have memorial works be there, but more sort of works that, that went in a different direction. And uh, so I was trying to look at, well, what is, what is the active life of this place? And at the point when I visited, the only people who were there at that point were uh, the traders over in the uh, commodities exchange, the New York Mercantile Exchange. Um, and they deal mostly with energy. Uh, so it's oil and coal and gas traders, as well as gold and silver. And um, so I had a friend who works at the exchange, uh, and he had always told me about this sound on the trading floor. And um, I think uh, Johanna played a sound, I guess, from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I had never heard that that sound before I did this piece. Uh, I'd only had it described to me my, by my friend Mark, and it sort of existed in my imagination. And, and uh, I, I wasn't disappointed when I, in fact, heard it. And again, it relates to this notion of multiple voices that, you know, back to the, the Vim Vendors clip and, and uh, other pieces that I've made that I'm not showing that deal with how you can listen to lots of voices in it. I thought about also the relationship between the sort of pit of men. And here in New York, I think there are 3,000 men licensed to trade on the energy floor and three women, of which only one actually trades. And so it is the voices of men uh, almost exclusively. And um, so it's this very hot, very uh, emotional, very worked up sound. And I was interested to sort of set it in opposition to the cooler fluctuations of prices, which is what, you know, what, this, what that sea of people I've come to understand is doing, is it's just sort of a leveling pool for the price of oil. Uh, if there's somebody out there willing to pay a higher price, then the, the whole pool rises. And if nobody out there is willing to buy for the price that it's currently selling, the whole pool falls. And so this 
this sort of seething pool of human beings is at some level just the, the output is just this meter, which is the price of oil. It's actually several, you know, many price indexes, but uh, oil being the, the single most important one. So uh, I'll just play the first two minutes of this. Also physically, you can see these palm trees, the way the piece was presented in, in the Winter Garden. The sound, the voices were coming, there were speakers built into the base of each palm tree. There are also speakers up above, 24 speakers altogether. They say, I didn't hear you, I know they're not telling me the truth. Because people always hear my voice, it's, it's unique and it's a strong voice too. If I'm selling Octobers, you know, you don't say, you, you say Ock, and you don't say the full handle, you say like Ock at 10. So I just yell out, Ock at 10! Ock 70 bid, 25, 25! So 25, Ock 75 bid at 78. 6 bid, so as you hear these voices, they're actually coming from these various trees. So it's, you know, and there's a good distance between them. So it made for a kind of uh, physical, spatial call and response, which uh, echoes a little bit the pit that they stand around. They are, in fact, yelling across this space to each other. Um, and I have to say, I don't know if any of you uh, were able to hear it in the space. Uh, in the end, very few people were the schedule that they had for it was kind of crazy um but it was very difficult to hear i i felt somewhat defeated by the acoustics of this room as much as i had thought i knew what i was doing uh it was because i made a, a piece that had speech in it it was virtually unintelligible um, in this echoey space despite the fact that i spent a week mixing it on the site trying to bring it out but uh it was very, very challenging. Uh, so uh, I, I was humbled by the acoustics here. Um, and so it, it, in a sense, it has a new life as a radio piece that works a lot more closely with, with what the piece is really about than it did on, on the site. Um, and I'm gonna finish by just showing this work in progress. Um, this is a park that 
uh, Ann Hamilton, who's an installation artist, is uh, designing along with um, uh, Michael Van Valkenburg, who's a landscape architect. It's uh, being built in Battery Park City. And Anne asked me to collaborate with her to create a kind of soundscape for this park. And uh, uh, my thought was to try to find a way of developing a kind of inner secret underground life for the park. And I had heard um, this, uh, these recordings of this uh, thing, it's called the Sukin Kutsu. Uh, and it's a kind of underground uh, uh, vessel made of clay in a Japanese garden uh, that is, it acts as a drainage system, but it's specifically designed to kind of resonate the sound of the water that's dripping into it, and it makes this kind of beautiful dripping sound. And that's not what we're going to do in the park, uh, but the notion of having a sound up from underground, uh, something subtle and uh, and 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 slightly mysterious, uh, is is an appealing one. So we hit on the idea of we thought at some point about building underground vessels in the park uh, out of concrete or something, and it was just astronomically expensive to do them at the construction level that's required for permanent sort of public works. And then we hit on the idea of using the municipal drainage system that's in place as es essentially the resonator, you know, substituting a manhole or a drainage inlet or a storm drain for the clay vessel. Uh, and it's a similar uh, kind of a situation. It has water that pools up at the bottom. It's concrete instead of clay. And I don't know how it's going to sound yet, but we're putting speakers in them. Uh, and uh, we'll, I, I haven't yet designed the sound either. I want to do that on site kind of in response to what, what I can hear up from out of these uh, drainage sites. but. Uh, here's how it's looking as of a few weeks ago. They've run the conduit, so we can eventually install the speakers. So um, I'm going to end with. Well, I'm not going to show this. I'm not going to show this. I'm not going to show this. So that's it. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.